You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by that other member of the Aberdeen Massive, David Priest, coach, scout and columnist. We'll start with some breaking news. Mark Hughes has been sacked by Southampton. No real surprise there. They won only five times under him. He's expected to be replaced by Ralph Hassenhuttle. The former Red Bull Leipzig coach is expected to be in charge for Saturday's game at Cardiff. Welcome to English football. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. I mean... It's almost been designed by a computer, that one, for a new manager coming into the, the Premier League. I remember Pep Guardiola's bafflement when they played Cardiff in the Cup. It was, it was like something he'd never seen before. It would be Neil Warnock, home stadium at full flow, playing pretty direct, pretty intense. But if it is Hassan Huttle, he's an experienced coach, actually. Most of his history before Leipzig was in, in the lower divisions in, in Germany. He was at Ingolstadt, did an incredible job there, took them up. Uh, in the Bundesliga there, a really small team and finished mid-table. I think he was at a place called FC Allen, whoever they are before. Um, but that was German third division. So he's not somebody that's sort of always had a, a silver spoon in his mouth in terms of the football he's been involved with. He, he, he's probably had to scrap on the way up. And he's been out of football for a couple of months after leaving Leipzig. He's, he's probably had his eye on England, I'd imagine, and, and had a bit of time to do his homework. So that will be put to the test by Neil Warnock. Mm, it will. You know, Austrian international, uh, but obviously a product of the German system. That's becoming quite a, a noted element of English football now, isn't it? It is. It's, um, it's not just a trend, you know, in the, in the past, you know, you, you have coaches come from Portugal, a big influx of Portuguese coaches playing the same sort of system as, uh, as Mourinho is uh, famous for. But I think uh, it's just the way the football's going and the way that the German coaches uh, sort of effectively play and, and coach it's effective at the moment mm-hmm. and uh, it's getting results and you see even in, with Daniel Farker at, at Norwich as well in, in the Championship it's, um, it seems to be a successful way of, uh, of going about things a successful route to go down and I think it's exactly the same here mm-hmm. I, think, I think what's interesting is it's almost like a recycling of ideas because you're looking at a, a generation of German coaches who in turn have been influenced by the English football of the 80s and 90s and that's been fed back into the German coaching system you know I mean Germany used to be 3-5-2 and sweepers in a very different way of building up but the the newer generation let's say the Klopp generation have taken English values like pressing and intense physicality and speed into their football I think Hassan Huttle's 
a Klopp-ish mm. German manager. You know, Leipzig played that way, very exciting, mm. very intense football, high pressing. I'd expect him to be similar, but it's interesting that these guys are almost coming to reconnect English football with what it used to be about. Mm. So you talked about before about the, the way that they're doing it now. It is like an old-style English uh, way of playing, but it's they're putting a brain to it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you know, when it was coached in the eighties, early nineties, it was kind of very relaxed way of doing yeah. it. It was kind of like the first man goes, then everyone else is just expected to go behind him when there's a real sort of methodology behind it this time. And it's, yeah, like I said, it's effective. Yeah. Mm, but, you know, part of the Southampton story has been based upon recruitment. Yeah. Now, it looks like you know, if you join up the dots, Paul Mitchell, who used to be head of recruitment at Southampton, then Spurs, now is at Leipzig, has been talked about for a sporting director role back at Southampton. So you can see the sort of germination of a renewed strategy here, can't you? And they really need it because they can't afford to go down, can they? No, and they, 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 they are a bit like Swansea were a few years ago, where it was a club that seemed to have a very strong strategy that slowly, slowly kind of departed from it. And I guess Les Reed's paid the price for, for that process. The recruitment hasn't actually been good enough in the last couple of years. They, they, they've failed to replace the Van Dykes and the the Wanyamas with players of equal quality. It looks like Ross Wilson, who's been, I think he'd be quite influential in this appointment. Mm. Has, he was at Huddersfield, of course. He was at Huddersfield, when yeah. When David Wagner went there. Um, just, I think just before, yeah. but, but was looking at David Wagner. Uh, he brought Van Dyke to Southampton, which is a pretty good feather in the cap. So it looks like he's, he's been given more control. And if Paul Mitchell comes back, you'd expect the recruitment to to sort of improve further and, and it's, it's just whether they get time I mean that's the thing if they want to go back to that model I think it makes perfect sense but they've also got a short term job to try and beat relegation mm. What does this tell us about English coaches Dave are they terminally unfashionable? No but I think we've kind of uh, we're getting there at the moment but it's still sort of low level sort of um, the seeds have been sown for you know the way that Gareth, uh, Southgate is going about things these guys are already ahead of us, you know. They've already been able to implement their own philosophy and their own spin on on what they're doing in the in the German coaching system as well. And like all the stuff that Dan Ashworth has has implemented with the the DNA, it's not just about the players; it's about the coaches as well. And those coaches being able to bring through those those English players, and we're already seeing it as not just at youth levels, but coming up now into mm. in a full international as well. It's, it's becoming a, a real sort of conveyor belt, you know, where we're getting the same type of players, the players that we want, the players that's earmarked by the, by the FA. That's exactly what they want. Yeah, we'll bring them through now. Rather than just relying on talent and a little bit of luck and, or a bit of physicality, there's a real system behind it. Mm. Yeah, if we look at, at the vanguard of, of young or youngish English coaches and managers we talk about Eddie Howe and we have until now been talking about Sean Dyche mm. now you know with the world in which we live social media some Burnley fans are saying you know get rid of him let's get Sam Allardyce in well good <laughs> luck with that but Burnley are banging trouble aren't they I think they're in huge trouble they seem to have lost what made them such a good team in the last couple of years which was that togetherness that, that edge to their play tactics are, are pretty much the same but they seem to be playing that, that way without the, the intensity and the edge to it. So there's problems, I think, in terms of the behind-the-scenes dynamics. I'm not quite sure exactly what they are, but you can see it doesn't seem to be quite as purposeful and happy a team as it was. And that's difficult for Sean Dyche. He's had a tremendous rise in management. 
what he did last year was unbelievable, mm. getting seventh mm. for Burnley. The recruitment's been bad as well, you've got to say that. They just didn't build on their success. You look at what Bournemouth did, bringing in Lerma and Brooks in the summer. Similar club, that's exactly what Burnley failed to do. They just you know, haven't refreshed the squad. But beyond all of that, this hasn't been a good few months for Sean Dyche. We're talking about English coaches. What needs to happen is that to be seen in the context of his previous achievements in his career. And too often, I think, for English managers, they have a couple of bad months, they get sacked and that's it. And that's part of the problem in, 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 our, in our football is not sticking with guys or giving them second chances. So Sean Dyche has definitely earned the right to try and get Burnley out of here and even if it goes wrong, still be seen as a, as a good manager. I mean, that's what the hope is. The hope he just sees out this season, keeps them mm. up and then he's, he gets a chance to build again because the, the, he has got something there. He has got a, a real good foundation, but I just think it's even the little bits of quality that they've had in the past that they've lost, you know, likes of Keane at the back and yep. Kevin Trippier, mm -hmm. it gave them something going forward as well. They just lost that little bit of quality as well. As a goalkeeping coach, would you put Tom Heaton back in the team? I would have. Um, I think that you know he spent a lot of time out of the side, but he's influential in the dressing room, obviously the club captain. He's been really unfortunate with injuries. And I think it... it Nothing against Joe Hart, that Joe Hart's uh, been playing badly. But when you're in a sticky situation like they are, you're looking for players to be the difference, and especially in the goalkeeping terms. In the past couple of seasons, without the top form of Heaton and Nick Pope, mm. they might still be in the same situation they're in now because they're still, they were con still conceding a lot of shots on target and they were getting a lot of blocks in around the box as well. But they're not, just not doing that at the moment. And so if that difference, Tom Heaton coming in, it might be an organisational issue. He, you know, he's got that relationship with the players in front of him as well. And that makes the difference to to get them out of trouble. And once they get a couple of wins and get out of trouble, it takes a little bit of the fear out there, the performances. Because mm. when you look around that that area, Newcastle have got themselves out of it. Rafa's yeah. now talking about trying to get four new players in. Mm. Good luck getting that past Mark Ashley. <laughs> but who do you think around and about that area has got some worries? There's probably three or four that are in bigger trouble than, than the likes of Newcastle. I don't think Newcastle are entirely out of it just because of that. But it is yeah. actually... And, and Wolves will be able to buy their way if they need to, won't they? Wolves should... Yeah, they, they, they should be able to just recruit and, and, and they need a striker. I think if you put a striker in, they'd get that in January, they're all right. I think Huddersfield, it's going to be a battle for them all season, lack of quality. Wagner's got them going again, they're starting to pick up those points. But they just don't have enough quality in the team. And I think Southampton got issues. Hassan Huttle, if it's him, has to has to hit the ground running and do well there. Cardiff, I'd say the same as Huddersfield. Bit of a lack of quality, but you know that they're going to set a certain bar. You know that then they, they and Huddersfield are going to get to that 33, 34 points. I think mm. they scrap them. Mm. On Wednesday night after the Manchester United-Arsenal game, BT Sport are uh, running a new documentary called Too Good To Go Down on Manchester United going down in 1974. I've seen it, it's brilliant. A lot of old men quite... Bitter and rancorous. <laughs> Love old Scots. Yeah, yeah. Now, that can't happen today, can it? But in the process of you know, Manchester United literally being now too big to go yeah. down, what have they lost? Because you look at Man United now under Mourinho, and it seems to me, and also it seems to quite a few fans, that they've lost a bit of their soul. It's true. And I think that's, you know, they talk about identity and philosophy in football. They, they had an identity under Sir Alex. And now it's they've traded it for another one. It's not successful. So it's kind of... I think the fans feel a little bit sort of... The disconnect is because the, the, that identity has changed. 
and they don't feel as if the team reflects what they've known for the last mm. 20, 30 years. Certainly the, the fans that have just been going in that time. But I think that for a team that plays like Mourinho's style of play, there isn't that same ethic there, the same doggedness and, and work ethic. And I think that was a big example of that was uh, Paul Pogba the other day. Mm. When, when he's losing the ball, there's, there's, 25 times against Southampton. I mean, listen, we, you know, you go last season, I think you'll find that Kevin De Bruyne was probably the player that gave the mm. ball away the most in the in the Premier League, but that's because he, he's trying to create things and he, he's trying the more difficult passes. But when you see the, the types of passes and the possession that Paul Pogba's given away, giving the ball away isn't the crime, it's what happens afterwards yeah. that's the crime. Yeah. And the lack of intensity and winning the ball back and sort of feeling sorry for himself and... It's just encapsulates exactly what's happened there because they're not even fighting for themselves. Yeah. Never mind working for each other. Mm. And um, it, when that happens, it's a disastrous situation. Yeah. It was. It's, you know, by all common consent, there was a confrontation in the dressing room mm. between Mourinho and Pogba. Is it as basic as it's him or me? Look, there's a case for saying it should be both of them, I have to say. In different ways, they're both symptoms of the same problem that David's talking about, which is this loss of identity for United, this loss of... And they're both guys who've succeeded in, in different settings. But are they the right people for Manchester United? I mean, the documentary's timely because even when United went down, they didn't lose their soul. They got those record crowds in the, in the second tier. They were still thrilling people. It wasn't top standard football, but it was thrilling football. And that's what United are all about. That's just not what you're going to get with Jose Mourinho. We've known that from day one. What you, you thought you were going to get was a winning team and a certain efficient way of playing that doesn't seem to be there. That's just not working, and I don't think it's ever going to work. And Pogba, he's there, he's billed as their big star. He's billed as their Kevin De Bruyne, he's billed as their Aiden Hazard, he's billed as their Mo Salah, and he's just not on the same level as these guys. Not in talent, but in terms of, of achievement, I think he's proved over the last couple of years he's not a great, great player because great players will do it for themselves. As David said, it doesn't matter if they like the manager or not, they will do it for themselves, they've got a certain pride. That guy's playing central midfield, now in the role that he likes with, with, with freedom. Does he dominate the game? Does he influence the game like a, you know, a, a Steven Gerrard, like a Yaya Toure? Yaya Toure was doing it even when him and Guardiola weren't on best terms. Does he do it like Kevin De Bruyne? Does he have that influence? I don't think he does. Luis Suarez fell out with Brendan Rodgers. He still gave Liverpool a good season. What I'm saying is that great players are able to summon up the pride and the professionalism to do it. Pogba will leave and, and go somewhere else and be successful and good because he's so good but I think it reflects badly on him that he, he can't bring that performance just because he's disaffected with the manager. Mm. How bad does it need to get David before Man United bite the bullet and accept the massive compensation check they're going to have to write and just say bye bye to Mourinho? I think the Champions League plays a big part in that. They've qualified for the next round mm. you know it's mm. Was anybody really expecting them to, to push the title this year? I don't think so. But in a cup competition, once you get past the, the group stages, you think that on a game-by-game -game basis, you think that Mourinho he can come up with something to get a result. So there's every chance that they could get further in the, in the Champions League. It doesn't look like it. But what he's done in the past, he would say that. One thing about, um, about United is that comparing him to, say, a, a Chelsea team of Mourinho's past... They just don't have the same spine, the same quality mm. of player. They don't have a Drogba, Lampard, Terry, mm. Czech. They have their pet of Czech, but yeah. the other three players, they don't have that. Right, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking now at Emery at Arsenal, and I know we'll speak about Arsenal, but Arsenal's defence isn't any better than United. Mm. I know Mourinho's been complaining that he didn't get the centre-backs in the, in the summer, 
But you know, you're not telling me Rob Holden and and Skoda and Mustafi are, are any better or worse than the United centre backs. The full-backs had defensive issues before Emery arrived. And you're suddenly looking at a different team in the space of 20, 23 games, three or four months, because he's gone in and he's grabbed it and he's, he, he's, he, he's instilled his values very quickly and he's taking people with him. I realise he's not done that at any point. Yeah, I, read a, I read the piece that you, you did uh, with Emery at the weekend and you know, what came across was... One is intensity and two is attention to detail, yeah. which actually, when it's together, is a pretty yeah. good combination, isn't it? It is, and it's the ability then to have the human dimension and communicate all of that. And even though his English isn't that good, he places a lot of store on, on, on one-to-one chats with players. So that detail then gets across in a way that the player's inspired by and doesn't feel beaten down by, which I think might be the yeah. case with Mourinho. You, know, you can get top players to track back if you inspire them properly. Ranieri did it with Riyad Mahrez. I don't think he'd ever track back in his life. But in that Leicester title-winning season, was inspired and knew what he was doing within the system. It can be done. And, and Emery's getting ferocious work rate out of people like Aubameyang and Lacazette. Tactical work as well with, with this detail. But he, he's doing it because he's communicating it properly. And, you know, if you show players something that works, they'll follow it. If, if it's a winning formula, they'll follow it. And if they play with the intensity they played against Spurs... Well, wipe Man United off the planet, won't they? I think that's what all the Arsenal fans are so pleased about, not the fact that the, the way they played, the fact that they've overcome adversity in the middle of the game. They probably thought that things were going against them. Mm. The penalty decision with Son could have gone either way, really. But they've come back and, yeah, it's, it's it was great to see, not just from Arsenal's perspective, but from both sides. It was great to see a derby with a little bit of needle. It's a great game. Yeah, it was. There's something at stake where, for too long, I mean, we saw the, the game after was the derby game, the yeah. derby game where, OK, it, it, it wasn't exactly the same. You know, it had a better finish, you would possibly say, but it was uh, didn't have that same sort of edge to it anyway. You know, whether we like it or not, or whether we admit it or not, we love a bit of scuffling with the subs, don't we? <laughs> we <laughs> do. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it's, it's, I mean, as long as it doesn't go too far, which it can quite often do in that kind of atmosphere, it uh, great, makes a great spectacle. Yeah. What do you think the impact of that defeat will be on Spurs and Pochettino? I think it's a body blow for Pochettino. I was at Wembley the week before when they, they did so well against Chelsea. Mm. And his press conference afterwards was really interesting because... He was at pains not to over-celebrate. He was at pains to say, this has to be what we are in every game. And he openly said that the players don't always give me that aggressivity, is his, his, the word that he uses, but I think we know what he means. So for a week later, for that to happen against Arsenal, where I know they, you know, they were 2-1 up, but they didn't really deserve to be 2-1 up. And 4-2 was about as good a scoreline as they could have hoped for. Mm. For them to just not compete in the way that Arsenal competed with what had gone before, with the warnings Pochettino had given them, I think that'll, he'll take that really, really hard. Really difficult to explain, actually, why Spurs dropped in that way. Maybe they were just not ready for what Arsenal were able to unleash on them in that first 20 minutes, yeah. rattled them completely. Mm. It could have been the old sort of Fergie line, couldn't it? Oh, it's only Spurs lads. <laughs> Spurs lads. And that actually came across, I thought, really eloquently. When Pochettino, as you say, is on it, he almost makes light of the problems that Spurs have had with budgets and recruitment and everything else. Big defeats like that, are they likely to drive him into the arms of a bigger club with respect to Spurs? Yeah, possibly, but I think it was... This game in particular, more than any other, was the one where it could have changed a lot more. If from a Spurs perspective, 
if they had showed some dominance in this game, then yeah. it could have pushed them a lot further than just a, any other do, normal Derby win could have done. It was um, probably a little painful for him because I think that rather than the team failing, I think a little bit has to go down to him as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I, as much I, I've seen a lot of Juan Foyth and he's he's a brilliant footballer. Looks nothing like a centre a centre mm. half. Very slight, but he's Argentinian. He puts his foot in, and but he puts his foot on the ball as well. Mm. But I think yesterday, I think he got him got it wrong, uh, not playing Alderweireld. Yeah, that was very very strange. I don't understand the principle of resting him and then bringing him back in in midweek for yeah. a much lesser game. Surely it has to be the other way around, and that would have sent alarm bells. Did send alarm bells through Spurs fans as soon as they saw the team. So, so yeah, Pochettino. If you want the players to act like it's the biggest game, then you've got to give them the best team. You've got to yeah. convey that message through your team selection, I think, as well. And I thought the other message that Emery uh, conveyed really well was this idea of positivity. You know, he was proactive in his substitutions, getting two up you know, in the later stages of the second half. That probably was... You know, we talked about welcome to England mm-hmm. earlier on. Yeah. That was his welcome to England moment, wasn't it? Definitely. And as much as we talk about the intensity that Arsenal played with... I think it must have been just after Spurs went 2-1 up or... Yeah, it must have been around that time. He, he was just calling for calm all over mm. the pitch because when things go quickly go against you in a, in a game like that, it's easy to lose your head. It's easy to lose sort of... You think it's unjust, so you, you start sort of uh, flying the tattles a little bit harder and try to w- wrestle back the momentum of the game again where he was pretty calm as much as, like I said, as much as he, he's intense and he likes these players to play intense. He was trying to calm everyone down. That's what I think to do. Chelsea against Manchester City, you know, another sort of super-rich mm. derby. You saw City on Saturday, yeah. uh, Johnny. What sort of impression did they leave on you? <laughs> Frightening again. Frightening because five changes plus Kevin De Bruyne played pretty badly for half an hour in that game, 25 minutes, half an hour, and still beat a really good Bournemouth team. Beat them 3-1 going on. In the end, could have added another couple of goals. And it just underlined... The quality, the impregnability, if you like, of what they're building there. What was interesting was Guardiola actually been quite pleased that they played badly within the game because he said, oh, now I've got a weapon in my pocket that I can... Which sounded a bit like a Rick Mayo line. But <laughs> I've got a weapon in my pocket that I can um, use to the players to stop complacency. It was just another of those... Played some great stuff. I thought, individually, Raheem Sterling's performance told me a lot because... He really grabbed the game in the second half and it showed how he's grown. Mm. Is he the most effective player in the Premier League at the moment? Definitely. I mean, I just wish that the, the, the mazy run he went in, he cut in yeah. from the right-hand side and end up on the, the left-hand side of the box and hit the post. I, just, I was hoping that... Deserved the goal. Yeah, yeah, he deserved it. But I think... Uh, I, and I have a lot of sympathy with the teams that come up against City because when City have the ball, that pitch, even when you're looking at itself, it looks twice as big. And you've got so much more space to cover and it's it's mesmerising how they do it and the, the movement of the players, the way they mm. create space. It's... They create a chance within about 25 seconds mm. of that game. Just from what you see, they were just, just making the pitch wide, going down the left. Suddenly they were in the box, they had a chance to score. And Someone said, you know, Man United could play for an hour and not create that chance and they've done it in 25 seconds. It's so, it's so effective from being done to such a high standard. Mm. That was Pep's... 400th win as a manager out of 543 games, so 97 wins for City. When all the stats have, have come to their natural conclusion and he calls it a day, where will he stand in the pantheon of great coaches? 
I think that you know the bar's been set by whoever wins the most trophies, whoever's got the most trophies in the in the cabinet. But the influence that not just he's had on City and the City side, but the influence he has all the way down right to the bottom level of football, the grassroots of football, people want to play that way. Mm. It's given other coaches the confidence to have the belief in what they uh, the the way they want to go about football and see watch a lot of sort of uh, academy football right down under nines and I think that we knew we wanted to play like that, but we needed somebody directly in front of us to show us how to do it and to give us the ideas and to say that, that well, we can do it this way. All right, they've got the best players. They recruit very well. There aren't many flops at City no. these days. No. And, and most of them, you know, if, if anybody does come in and doesn't hit the ground running, then they're... So Mangala was the last one, really, yeah. wasn't so, it? So, yeah. It's only a matter of time before they do. I think for me that's going to be his lasting influence on the English game that it's given coaches at every level the confidence to try and play it that way yeah is he like in that sense Johnny is he the modern Cruyff he's certainly the prophet of Cruyff or whatever he's certainly the one that's taken those ideas and demonstrated them in a way that Cruyff did in his era but also did it through playing you know and then embodied it as a manager and with his intellectualism but he's taken it on He's also assimilated modern ideas. So we started off talking about German football and pressing. Well, you know, Pep goes to, to Germany. He sees the standards that people like Dortmund were setting. He brings that into Bayern Munich's football and then carries it on in Manchester City's football. Manchester City are playing differently to that Barcelona team that he started with, but yet they're still playing the same, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Those principles David talks about are still at the absolute core of it, but it's different dynamics because it's English football and he's had to change again. He, sometimes they go direct in games, they, they defend well against direct football now. So he's such a clever man. The way he's been able to take that, that, the core Cruyff ideas and just adapt them and, and change in different settings, that is what shows coaches that it's possible that you can do it at any level. Yeah. And it's inspirational. You know I, mean? I think Sir Alex was inspirational in a totally different way where it was more about leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what everyone took from him, and he sort of his team sort of they had to morph and, uh, and, and change, and uh, he had to create different sides throughout the, the decades yeah. he was in charge. Yeah. Whereas I think with Guardiola, it's not just the leadership, it's not just the way that he handles his players, but it's the way that he plays the game as well. And that's yeah. it, it is, it's inspirational. You spoke, David, about academy football, having seen a lot of that, and I just want to make a broader point about you know, there's a lot of talk about loans being restricted to maybe six to eight players, which obviously for, for a club like City or even more particularly Chelsea, you've got, I was astonished to read, I think it was Ollie Kay, 107 pros mm. at that football club, 14 goalkeepers, yeah. 40 on loan. Where are we going with that? Well, I think, you know, when it, you know, I think it was, it was Matt Hughes who did the story. Matt, was yeah. it, sorry, it was Matt, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There seems to be so many caveats where... I don't think it's going to hinder clubs that greatly. Obviously, Chelsea's is probably mm. it's, it's a, an example where it's they do it to a huge extent. But uh, you know, if they're homegrown, if yeah, there's, there's different sort of caveats mm. to it. But I think if a club wants to have that many players under their umbrella, to me, it only accelerates what's being done at other clubs where they're acquiring clubs in in mm -hmm. Holland, in France, and in, in mm. Austria. And then they literally just move the players within mm. that organisation. So whatever rules come in, it's for the good of the game or it's for the right idea. I think people are expecting it to 
all those players that are, that are ordinarily at those clubs are going to filter down they'll go elsewhere in the system and players will get better chances elsewhere at other clubs I'm not sure that'll yeah. happen I've been thinking about this a little bit and, and also with the whole idea of quotas that the FA are mm. trying to push and it's difficult to legislate things like quotas and, and stopping clubs doing loans that's trying to I guess stop businesses running the way they want to run I think it's got to be about the player I think it'd be really simple if there was a rule that said if a professional doesn't play a certain amount of games mm -hmm. for the club who owns them for their first team within let's say a span of two years then he's available yeah. on transfer still get some money for him but if you don't want to use him in your first team then there's almost like a break clause or a freedom of contract clause where someone can go and acquire him whether that's that set fee whether that's for free, I don't know, but I think that would discourage clubs from stockpiling players. And I think the most important thing we're talking about is the development of players. So it would stop players getting shifted about or blocked, as it were. You know, if you don't want to use a player, then you should be forced to mm. put them on the market. But there's a natural dynamic beginning to, to take shape now, isn't there? If you look at Chelsea, Callum Hudson-Odoi has basically said, play me or sell me. Ruben Loftus-Cheek coming back in the team, scoring his fifth goal in six games. But can you see him getting a regular place? Probably not. Will the players, who ultimately have a power, will they just break the system from within? I mean, there's two ways. Look, they, they do have to do that. And, and I think a lot of 10, 15 years ago, there was a, a way of thinking that I will go out and get football. No matter what level it is, I'll go and get football. That's where I'm going to develop my game under pressure situations where something you know it's got consequence when they're losing games but I think that um, we lost that and players got comfortable in their in their big club environments and another thing is that they it, it isn't that easy to leave a big club if you're at Manchester mm. United and Chelsea it's a bit of a wrench to be leaving that sort of environment but players are seeing that that's the pathway now the likes of the Pickfords and people like that mm. Pickford and uh, Nick Pope the way he's came through the, through the leagues that's inspired someone like Dean Henderson at Man United to go out to Grimsby, to go out to Shrewsbury, mm -hmm. and now it's Sheffield United and perform really well to make sure he gets where he needs to go. But at the same time, the, the, I said there's ways around it, not just the, the players for, for the clubs, they can um, sell or allow a player to move to a club, but they've got uh, mm. part of that deal is that they have a, a really buy small right, yeah. buyback mm -hmm. if they're a success mm -hmm. there, so it's yeah, there's ways and means around it. Mm. And I suppose it's all about squad depth these days that was, yeah. that was accentuated in the in the Merseyside derby you know the most unlikely scorer of a most unlikely winning goal was Origi who's yeah. basically come back from nowhere that's right um, just looking at that game as a whole it seems that Liverpool haven't quite been firing no. yet they've managed to stay within touching distance of City it's some achievement funny watching Liverpool at the moment I mean they're on course for something ludicrous like 98 points which <laughs> any other year title winning has probably put them six points short with this Man City team mm. it's incredible but then they're not the Liverpool of certainly the second half of last season by any means and that derby emphasised that Everton were a lot better so it, they were playing against a much better team they've played in derbies for quite some time but the problems were there you know lack of creativity in midfield the front three just not sparking particularly Firmino with his lack of form, but I thought Salah had a poor game as well. The fullbacks aren't quite pushing on the way they, they used mm. to. There's a consciously more cautious approach from Klopp. That cost them in Europe, didn't it? Which cost them in Europe. And that's coupled with players not settling in, injuries, front three being a little bit off form. You're looking at something that in many ways isn't as good as it was, but is achieving great heights. The question for Liverpool is, 
if they then start getting back to, in an attacking sense, the, the football they played last year, with this defensive solidity, you are looking at a title-challenging mm -hmm. team. They kind of got away with it on Sunday, and that will catch up with them. They have to play better. What happened in Europe will happen in the Premier League. They can't keep... They're not going to win a game like that again, so mm. they have to improve from that. I, I just wonder if, if there is going to be a time when the, the Jurgen Klopp uh, flicks a switch, mm -hmm. because you, we know that the way that they've played, it's high intensity. A lot of people are saying, well, they can't keep it up uh, to the end of the season. Obviously, the Champions League cost them a little bit in the league last year. They had a lot of injuries the year before, after January. So you just wonder whether they get the January and then... I think the stats prove that they haven't, the runs haven't been as intense, they're not running mm. as far in games. Mm. Um, so when, you think if they get to January, February, they've still got a little bit more left in the tank, whether they do just go for it. For that to happen, I think Naby Keita needs to be playing and he needs to be the Naby Keita that they think they signed yeah. because that's what they're lacking, that bit of dynamism in midfield, that, that attacking sort of edge to the midfield. I mean... Lalana's another one that would have been, I'd have thought was capable of that a couple of mm. years ago, but it just has dropped off. Are they missing the Ox as well? Oh, massively. Yeah. I mean, that, that is player above all that they're missing. And last season, the football really jumped when he was settled in and finally got into the team, which was round about this time last year. So if they are going to flick the switch, I think Kate has become the key man. He has to be the one. We saw a glimpse of it, you know, the first couple of games, you know, where you just take the ball and just strides forward with the butts. I keep going back to the same thing about Alex Ockley Chamberlain when 16 17, watching him play centre midfield mm. and just using his pace just to break lines and get past players. And when you do it from that position, you break past that player in front of you. Your next pass is a, you know, a chance, or you've got a chance for yourself to, to shoot and goal. We can't sort of end the discussion about the Merseyside derby without talking about the method of its <laughs> conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from your point of view, I notice you've been, you know, you've defended Pickford on social media. Yeah. To the great unwashed like myself, I thought, well, that's pretty simple, just knock it over the bar. You say it's not that simple. No, because I think that that ball, goalkeeping terms, it's the most difficult ball to, to judge. We've seen it previously in the games, uh, Brighton's game. I think Matty Ryan lost the goal at the weekend. The ball was lumped in the six-yard box. Patricio against Cardiff. I, don't know, I think he might have been fouled, but it's the same sort of thing. It's so difficult to judge. And in that sort of... Uh, it's the last minute of the game. To me, my first instinct was he's just got to be safe. So he's got to try and go with one hand. And I think he's come out and said that he has tried to touch it over. To me, I think he's just put both his hands there he hasn't tried to catch it. A lot of people try to say that he's trying to catch it so he can set off a, mm. a quick counter-attack. I don't get that at all. I think he's just put his hands there because it's so difficult to judge. And you think, we see the, the still from the side of the pitch and it is just going the other side of the post. So if he left it, it would have gone out. He doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. You can't judge within a, a, an inch of where the ball's going to land. I think he's just put his hands there thinking, if it touches my hands... It's going to be enough to deflect it back, and it wasn't. It, it, it had to be sort of more of a, an affirmative action to, to, to try and get the ball away. But as an error, it's such a difficult situation and, and it's such a difficult ball to judge. There's no way that I would uh, make it an error or a mistake by him. It, 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 I mean, it doesn't look great, I know that. Why, why doesn't he go with one hand then? I think that he doesn't know whether it's going to hit the ball or mm -hmm. not. So then he puts his hands there just in case it's going either side of it mm -hmm. and to be safe. Put two hands there because it's safer than one. I think that uh, in the end, he's been caught out by not doing either. It's sort of like being caught in between. 
mm. and uh, th th he's just left it down to, to potluck that's bounced back in. We always talk about goalkeeping being the most exposed position, and I suppose this absolutely emphasises that. When you've been involved in an incident like that, you know, when people are saying, you know, you made the mistake, it's your ricket which has cost you the, the win, especially in a derby, you're going back into the dressing room, what welcome awaits you and how do you feel? Depends because some people will react differently. So that a high pressing situation like that and the emotions run high, some people might just come back to you and say, you know, what were you doing there? And then you explain it and just say, I put my hands up trying it in the ball spawn or whatever his excuse was. And he'll come out and say that. And, and I think that's especially when you've got a goalkeeper like him, especially in that game where he's he's made some crucial saves, mm. that's you know, if you've got credit in the bank with the rest of the players, then it's you know, it doesn't make as much of a difference in that situation. It's I don't think as much. But, much the, the, goal, the goalkeeping coach plays a big deal in a, a big, big role. Sorry, in how John Pickford deals with it as well. We know what, what he's like. You you, yeah, you, yeah. you know his yeah. you know his character. Yeah, he's he's tough to that, and he'll know that going to the next game, he'll just want to impress. He'll not overly want to impress, but he'll just make sure that it wasn't it won't happen again. Yeah, because it's a cruel world, isn't it? Because if, hmm. if you think about it, within minutes of that sequence of events. There's people on social media coming out with headlines about, I'll never make a mistake like yeah, Alison yeah, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. It must eat away at your confidence and your self-worth almost. Certainly test it. But as David said, he's pretty impregnable mentally from what I've seen so far anyway. Certainly dealt with being an England goalkeeper better than anyone for a generation. Alison is, is, should be his inspiration because Alison's mistake at Leicester was was just as bad. He got away with it because Liverpool didn't lose the, the game, but it was it was a really bad mistake and he fronted up to it and he, and he moved on from it. But that, I guess, is proof that, that any goalkeeper... We've seen De Gea make, make, make bad mistakes, somewhere. But it, it's right you made a comparison to Alisson's mistake there because a lesser keeper, someone like myself, would have took the safe option every single time and touched it away. Now, whether you try to catch it or whether you just try to... To have confidence, his own sort of uh, his own ability to read where the ball's going to go. That's the same confidence that gives us all the good stuff, the, the, the stuff that puts us through to the uh, semi-finals mm. of of World Cups. Mm. It's the same with Allison. That's why you know the confidence that he has in his all-round game that made him make that mistake. Just want to finish on the Merseyside derby with Jurgen Klopp's joyous little gallop to see Allison. You know, a lot of people are trying to make a lot of this. Why don't we just say, look, the guy was consumed by the moment, get over it? This is a difficult one because we love Klopp and we, we, the passion that he shows and, and, and we, it's a great moment on a human level, but it's just a principle. I think if you allow that, then what happens next? Hopefully there'll be a bit of common sense, but when, you know, you can just see certain other managers using the, the running on the pitch opportunity in a different way. Some questions from the, from the viewers and the listeners. Gareth Stringer, if we can start with you, Dave. Like Aaron Ramsey, should Arsenal look to move Meza Ozil on, get his hefty wages off the book and replace him with a better fit, more consistent quality and better value for money? Well, I think for, was it, three £350,000 a week, if he's not going to be integral to that side, then certainly they've got to offload him. Perhaps it's different with the, the financial landscape these days that mm. clubs can afford to, to carry that sort of wage bill. I mean, look at Alexis Sanchez at Manchester United. But, yeah, it doesn't make financial sense to me. You know, the way that Ramsey played, I mm. couldn't, for the life of me, work out why they're willing to get rid of him. No, I mean, talked about how Emery's 
clever guy who is able to change. Well, maybe that's a, something he's got to maybe he's got to change his mind. I think it speaks very well about Adam Ramsey that he's putting in that level of performance while contract situation so uncertain. He looks more an Emery player than Ozil does mm. for exactly what we saw. In the system that Emery wants to play, the way he wants to play, the, the counter-pressing, the energy up front. You know, I know Ozil runs a lot, but it's not, it's not intense work. It's difficult to see it fitting, but it's difficult to see someone paying him 350 grand a week. Mm. Yeah. Question from uh, Gerd de Kaiser. Are the English media too obsessed with the influence of managers? It's all about the players, surely. Ranieri can win the league with decent players. Pep can't win it with Fulham or raffle with Newcastle, do you think? Good question. And that's it's eternal struggle as a football writer, trying to decide who should get credit for stuff. And we're also in a system where, from a PR point of view, clubs put the managers up all the time, project them, and then keep the player interview stuff to a minimum because they want to use that themselves. So the position of the manager, I think, is bigger than ever in, in, in the way we talk about football in England. But I'm not sure if Brian, would Pep Guardiola... We're so sure that he wouldn't be able to win the league or to at least take the opportunity that, that Ranieri was able to take at, at Leicester. I don't know. We are seeing elite managers now. Mm. In the, we're seeing a transfer market for managers. We're seeing the impact that they can have. So I guess it's a bit of a fence-sitting argument, but I'm going to disagree, really. I think, I think instinctively I want to say it's all about players, but there's a lot of managers really making impacts in the Premier League at the moment. That you've got to say a lot of it's down to them. I think if you ask managers themselves, they will probably see other players. Mm. Simply because I think, you know, you can have so much confidence in your ability as well, but if you don't have the tools to, to implement that, then it's, it, it's very difficult. It'll only get you so far, I think, so I'll probably say players. Mm. Final point with um, you know, the latest managerial version, if you like. Sol Campbell at uh, Macclesfield. What's your view on... The nature of that gamble? I think it's great he's, he's, he's got a chance. I'm, I'm not an expert in Macclesfield, but I'm, I believe it's a very difficult situation. It's a difficult club. And it was put to me that he might be in for a nasty surprise as to how difficult that job's going to be. So if it fails, I hope people don't laugh at Saul Campbell, which there seems to be an edge of, of ridicule going on already just because he had the confidence in his press conference to, mm. say, remind us of his own playing career. I like that confidence. If he fails, I don't think he should be ridiculed for it, and, and I think the job that should be taken in in context. But I think I think it's hard, very hard to do something there. Unforgiving place, isn't it? It is. I mean, you look at this Macclesfield team who came through the from the National League last season. If they didn't get promoted, there'd be a, a big chance that they wouldn't be uh, around at all. They were yeah. in a real bad financial situation. But I actually think. Regardless what anybody thinks about Saul Campbell as a person, I think football needs Saul Campbell mm-hmm. to do well. Yeah. You know, we've seen the documentary last week with, uh, with Ian Wright. Uh, we've seen what's happened with the, the banana skin at, um, at, at the MS yesterday. Mm-hmm. I really, really hope Saul yeah. does a good job there. Yeah. Mm. Well, reputations count for nothing at the bottom of League Two, but at least he's having a go. Good luck to him. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.